Well, good morning. Uh, and Tim, thanks for the opportunity to do so, uh, to provide an update on Grace Partnership. Before I do, I just want to say to you what I said in the first service, which is thank you for your example, uh, as Casey just shared, of your involvement uh, in local mission. Honestly, the only way the global mission of Grace Partnership makes any sense is if the local churches within the partnership are actively caring for their own communities because mission starts right outside our doors. And so thank you uh, for that example. And especially in this time where among everything else going on this year, uh, it, it seems even, you know, with just there's a confusion over terms and ideas, but, but here's the reality in scripture. God is the author of care for the poor and the needy. And, and, and social justice, as it's come to be known, is a very confusing term. We can just bypass the confusion to say, you know what, when we open Scripture, a passage we just heard, it's, it's evident, it's clear. God cares that we care. And so thank you. Thank you for your example uh, with that. As Tim mentioned, uh, yeah, we have a small transition going on at uh, Metro Life Church. Uh, something I neglected to say in the first service, Tim mentioned Chris Jesse. Any of you who are familiar with Metro Life Church over in Orlando, the Jesse family's been a part of Metro Life Church for many years. So on the same evening and our most recent family meeting, we not only announced this transition and that Chris would be becoming the lead pastor, we also honored his father, Andy Jesse, who's retiring uh, after 20 years of service as the facilities manager of the building. And so we just couldn't orchestrate that. We couldn't plan to honor the father while appointing the son on the same night uh, at Metro Life Church. It was a really wonderful uh, evening together in that regard. Uh, but yes, uh, the partnership is growing and as we seek to figure out what does it mean to share in mission, equipping, and care, uh, God, is, God is growing, stretching the 10 pegs of the partnership. And I'll just drop into one example of this where this is really a cry for your prayers, uh, for desperate for wisdom as much as anything else. But uh, we have a partner church in a city called Benenquia, Colombia. It's on the north coast along the Caribbean Sea there, uh, a wonderful church, Mission Rescate with a, a thriving ministry. You uniquely have served that church, whether you realize it or not. Uh, first, you welcomed Juan Hernandez. He preached here in February. He's the lead pastor of Mission Rescate. Uh, additionally, when you heard about the need in their church to provide uh, basically uh, the infrastructure for them to beam out into their city online, the various classes they offer in their Saturday training. Uh, that was about a $1,500 expense. You weren't even asked to participate in that directly. Simply the sharing of the story moved on your hearts and you ended up supplying the funds to get our funds replenished to move on to the next opportunity. So that, this is what happened with that. The, the week before they had the capability to m simulcast all their classes at the same time, they had about 350 students enrolled in their uh, training center. They now have just under 1,000. During COVID, during COVID, it's grown that much. Um, and so this is, this is real. I hope, I hope this reaches your heart. Trinity 
is and will play a part in church plants that will go out as people are trained and equipped for ministry because they were able to participate in these classes. One day there'll be a church plant that you are, or I would say plants, you're directly related to and tied to. Additionally, uh, while Phil Corson and I, uh, Phil, a pastor in Gainesville, also in the partnership, when we were there in Bedenkia about three weeks ago, we had a, a number of meetings, different teachings, but one of the meetings in particular was for those pastors who were interested in learning more about the partnership. Well, that, that conversation has gone on, and at the moment, there are, there are 16 pastors representing about 12 churches who are asking if, if, if we would spend some time with them. So please pray for wisdom. Uh, I'm talking with Tim and, and uh, Josiah here about joining us on that trip uh, where we'll divide and conquer for a couple days, get out to different churches, but then actually have all those pastors come together in one place. Just picture a big Airbnb bunkhouse and we'll just spend three days together. Uh, we'll put the snores in one room and the rest of us in another room. Uh, but, but the partnership will probably largely pick up the expense of that because most of these would be, would be uh, poor pastors who are bivocational and just trying to make it meet, make ends meet. But what a privilege it is to invest in them over those days. They'll come from Cali, Bogota, Medellin, other cities around Colombia, all to come to bed in Kia to spend just three days together. That's gonna be the first week of February, Lord willing. So, Thank you in advance for praying. Uh, I feel like we don't know so much what we're doing, but we can talk about things we've done wrong, and if that helps prepare the next generation, that's a gift and a blessing for sure. So, so thank you uh, for all of that. If you would turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. I know you just recently finished your series in the book of Isaiah, so we want to turn to a shorter prophetic book in Scripture uh, and also a very unique book in prophetic scripture, as we'll see uh, in a moment. But before I read and before we pray, I want you to imagine uh, something with me. Uh, imagine it's 1943, and you are Jewish, and you live in New York City, and you are asked to get on a plane and go to Berlin and go into the middle of the city, and as a Jewish person, call out to the city of Berlin, repent of your wickedness. Nobody else is with you, just you, in the middle of the city. Would you go? What would you be thinking? What thoughts might go through your mind? Well, with that backdrop, Let's read the entire first chapter of Jonah, and then we'll pray. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So two times in the first three verses, there's a stress, there's an accent, away from the presence of the Lord. But verse four, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now think about that. The mariners, the experienced guys, the ones who are used to storms on the sea, they're afraid. They're throwing their cargo overboard. Jonah's asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil's come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil's come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it's pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered vows, a sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord, verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage and as I offer up this title, Who is My Neighbor? Would you bring the words of Jonah to our hearts this morning? Lord, we know this is preserved in Holy Scripture to instruct us, to teach us, to show us the way. And so, Lord, would you speak to us now? Give us ears to hear, Holy Spirit, what it is you would say to us through Jonah this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Who is my neighbor? Jonah, among other things, is a story of God's loving concern for all people. Contrasted with Jonah, who does not want all people to experience the same compassion and kindness from God that he and his nation Israel have received. From Jonah's perspective, the Assyrians, which are the Ninevites, they are undeserving, and more so, they're enemies of Israel. And Jonah is unwilling to go. Now, as you know, from VeggieTales, Jonah was a prophet. He will get it, but at this point, he hasn't got it. Jonah is unique in prophetic literature and scripture in, in two primary ways. One, he's writing in the third person. He's writing this after the events transpired. So this is Jonah looking back on what 
what that was like, that part of his life was like. And it's preserved for us, additionally, as, as what you might call prophetic satire. Jonah is, is rich with irony. Satire is not a word we tend to associate with scripture, but, but, but there's irony in this book. The, the man, the prophet who teaches Israel about the mercy of God is simultaneously the one in the story most in need of the mercy of God. The man who ought to know about the sovereignty of God is simultaneously the man who thinks he can get away from God. So it's rich with irony, as we'll see more and more as we go through this. But again, the message Jonah was to deliver to the Ninevites was a message that first needed to reach his own heart, which is that God's grace is for all, all who will believe and repent. So I want to summarize, if I can offer it this way to you, the message of Jonah and Jonah 1 this morning this way. God cares deeply about how deeply we care about people. God cares deeply about how deeply we care about people. Before we unpack the chapter, could we go right to the, not the elephant in the room, but the great fish in the room in verse 17 and deal with verse 17 up front? Little references made to the fish. You ever notice that? For all the talk about the fish, the fish, the fish, it's one verse really in chapter one. And then later, and the fish spit them out. And that's all there is about the fish in Jonah. But the fish gets like all the playtime in Jonah. It wasn't a question for the original audience. Was it a whale? Was it something else? I asked the first service, how many of them have been to the aquarium in Atlanta? How many of you have been to the Atlanta Aquarium? Okay, a few of you. You all need to take a field trip because like three people in Trinity have been to the aquarium in Atlanta. Uh, I mean, I know you're surrounded by water, but there's, there's a massive tank there with a massive, I think it's a blue whale, I think is what it's called. It's huge. It's just huge. When you're standing there on the safe side of the tank, there's no question in your mind as to whether or not it is possible for a human to fit snugly with room to spare inside the belly of a great fish, whatever that great fish happened to be. But people struggle with this. Was, was this a metaphor? Was this allegorical? Was it something else? None of that is the focus or concern of Jonah. Think about this. I know next week you start your series on Advent, and that culminates with Christmas Eve. What are we celebrating as we go through Advent? Are we not celebrating this, that a child was born to a virgin? Let's put two words together. Baby virgin. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> like, like we just saw a cute baby. I think probably what went down was a man and a woman came together and a sperm met an egg and voila. But what we're celebrating as we get to Christmas is a child has been given. A child has been born unto us miraculously. Why would it be difficult to believe that a man could be in the belly of a fish for a few days if our whole faith hinges on a virgin birth, the incarnation 
Additionally, as we get into 2021 and get to Resurrection Sunday, why would it be difficult to believe that a man could be in the belly of a fish if our whole faith, if our assurance of faith, if we know that we know that we know that our sins are forgiven, and it's based on this, that that same man who was born of a virgin would offer up his life on the cross as a once and for all sacrifice payment for all sins so that you and I would never need to try to make a payment that we couldn't even make. When he rose up out of that grave, it was the proof that God said, yes, it is finished. The fish just isn't that big a deal in Jonah. Finally, Jesus himself cited the sign of Jonah that would be given to that generation and the only sign that would be given to that generation, which was actually a merciful statement on his part. In other words, Jesus believed that Jonah really was in the belly of a great fish. If it was enough for Jesus, it's enough for me. And I hope it's enough for you. So we're done with the fish. Let's talk about Jonah. It's the book of Jonah, not the book of the great fish. Let's talk about Jonah. Why wouldn't Jonah go? Well, there's numerous possibilities, but let's cite a few. Perhaps the difficulties? Fair enough. Nineveh was a large city and a fortified one. As the capital of Assyria, it was the very center of Assyrian culture and the Assyrian empire. The walls around the city in places were reportedly 100 feet high, and they were so thick all the way around the border that three chariots could ride side by side. You know, I mean, like, what? A cannon is going to, a cannonball is going to do what to that kind of wall? Absolutely nothing. It was formidable. There's a picture of it here. To, I, I don't know how well you could see it, but the red line that goes around the city, and then you see the little yellow graph, the model down there, that's representing 500 meters. So you just start to plot that. Think about that. At that time, a city that huge. And, and Jonah is supposed to go find a palm tree or something somewhere right in the middle around that river bend maybe, and say to that city, the very city that sends out its army to oppress his people, repent of your wickedness. Wow. Now, we don't know all that was in Jonah's mind, but I I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine him asking this question. Why would God want me to go to them. There's this word that's gotten a little popular in culture today called othering. It's not a new concept. It's as old as time. If you will, Moses, he, or excuse me, Jonah, he othered the Assyrians. Why would God want me, an Israelite, to go to them, Assyrians? Do you have any thems in your heart? Assyrians were Gentiles, famous for their cruelty. You read the history, it's brutal. When the Assyrian army would capture their enemy, they were known for cutting off both legs and one arm, and then they would shake the hand of the remaining arm in mockery as they would just bleed out and die. For Jonah it had to feel like some kind of betrayal to go to the very people who were against his people. 
He couldn't comprehend why God would ask him to do this. This assignment from God made no practical or theological sense. And isn't that where we ourselves sometimes encounter the difficulty in our own lives? God, you're, that, that doesn't make sense to me. As I think it out, as I rationalize it, it doesn't make sense. So therefore, find me a boat to Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was a city in what is now known as Iraq. So forget 1943. We can make this modern. Just a couple years ago, imagine, imagine you're a born-again Christian living in Titusville. You are from the USA, and someone says to you, go to Mosul, get right in the center of the city, and call out to ISIS, repent of your wickedness. Who's on that plane? Doesn't that sound like a suicide mission? Because it would have been. (laughs) So I think we can have a little empathy for Jonah. Maybe it was the danger. It was an evil, wicked city. This is the worst advertising for tourism you're ever going to hear, what I'm about to read about Nineveh. This is from the book of Nahum. This is holy scripture. So if you find Nineveh on Airbnb, Find something else. Here's here's the Airbnb, if you will. Here's the description. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of the whips, the clatter of the wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. All because of the wanton lust of the harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and her people by her witchcraft. You want to (laughs) go? This is Nineveh. It's understandable that Jonah would have reservations. It's understandable to think that he's not interested in a suicide mission. Why would a Hebrew prophet go to a Gentile city like Nineveh. So difficulty is a possibility. Danger is a possibility. However, nothing in the book tells us that's his primary concern. And more so, he tells us, Jonah gives us his reason for going west toward Tarshish instead of east to Nineveh as God commanded him. Why wouldn't he go? It wasn't the danger. It wasn't the difficulty. It was his disdain for the Ninevites. It was his hatred for the Ninevites. It was his indifference to the fate of the Ninevites. As far as Jonah was concerned, whatever message of warning, which by the way, why does God warn? It's an expression of his mercy. Whatever warning God wanted to give to them, for Jonah, that meant this. Wait, if you're warning them, that maybe gives them the opportunity to repent. And Jonah did not want that opportunity for Nineveh. They didn't deserve it. And God, you just might give it to them. In fact, that's his stated reason. A little spoiler alert on Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
The reason I made haste to flee to Tarshish is because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. When Moses is, excuse me, when Jonah's quoting what God told Moses, He's not quoting it in in, in a grateful, affectionate way. He's accusing God. This is why I got on the boat to Tarsus, because I knew you just might be merciful. And I hate that, said Jonah. It's an accusation. He's accusing God of being merciful. Can we at least appreciate Jonah's honesty? Because Jonah says to God out loud what maybe we've sometimes thought. I want mercy. But I don't know if I want them, whoever they are, to have mercy. I don't like the fact, God, that you just might give it to them. We need to let that sink in. Jonah doesn't have a flattering chapter of his life recorded here. But there's a little Jonah in all of us, I think. God wanted to show mercy in some form to Nineveh, and that angered Jonah, his love and his sympathy for others clearly had a boundary, and that boundary wasn't in the walls of the city of Nineveh. And God's asking Jonah to enlarge his heart. And Jonah, at least initially, said no. He didn't only say no. He went in the completely opposite direction, in haste. Remember, the message, the book of Jonah for us, is God cares deeply about how deeply we care about people. Now, Jonah did not have the words of Jesus ringing in his ears when he was in the inner part of the boat. The words of Jesus in his second greatest command, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was in God's heart for Nineveh, but it wasn't in Jonah's heart for Nineveh. By the way, who is our neighbor? Everyone. Everyone. Now, Jonah has got some important theology. We learn about God in the book of Jonah and who God is and what he's like. First of all, as much as it created disdain for Jonah, God is merciful. God is merciful. Again, let let Jonah's rebuke of God settle in. Chapter four, verse two, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting Exodus. You remember when Moses asked to see the glory of God? And God said, that won't work out well for you. That won't end well for you. You'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm gonna pass by. And when I do, I'll talk to you. And God did. And do you remember? God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passed by. And the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, giving mercy to thousands of generations. Jonah's indicting himself. He's admitting, I know that's who you are, which is why I don't want to go. God is merciful. Now again, the satire in this is that Jonah's proving himself to be a man in need of mercy. Jonah, the prophet. Jonah, the teacher of Israel. Jonah, who knew the word of God of his own admission. He knew what God said to Moses. He taught Israel, but he could not reconcile how God would possibly want to show mercy to Assyria. I mean, I know you're merciful, God, but them? And in his inability to reconcile it, he proves he doesn't understand the message he was to give. Just because you teach something doesn't mean you live something. Just because you teach something doesn't mean you actually understand. Moses, he marveled that day when God said that to him. But for Jonah, he can't reconcile it. God is merciful to lost people. And it is a disaster. Is this not what we believe? It is a disaster to fall under the just wrath of God against our sins. There is nothing more disastrous that could happen than to stand before a holy God and have no covering. God was ready to show mercy to Nineveh, but Jonah, at least to anyone outside of Israel, he's indifferent to their plight. He wants judgment to come. He says, I knew you would relent from disaster. He does not want them to relent from disaster. And we've all got to wrestle with something here. Just think about people, people you know, people, the neighbors that are the people who make up your life. I don't just mean the ones who live on your street. Whoever neighbor is, does your heart lean toward have mercy on them, God. They don't know what they're doing. Or does your heart lean, get them, God. Get them. Tell you what, I don't want to be gotten by God. If I got what I deserved, I don't want that. Do you want that? If I don't want that for me, how could I want that for someone else? God is merciful. God was ready to show mercy to Nineveh, but Jonah, he, he, he can't be bothered. Now, we, we might want to, well, okay, okay, it's understandable. I mean, there's some really bad Ninevites, but it's not just the Ninevites. He's not only indifferent to them, He's indifferent to the people on the boat. These other pagan sailors, these aren't the Ninevites. They're going to Tarshish. They're a different people. He doesn't care about them either. I mean, we can understand, have a little empathy for his lack of empathy for the Ninevites, but, but these sailors, 
Look at the passage again, beginning in verse four. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now, I'm not a mariner. But I think if you are a mariner, you probably have experience with storms. If they've gotten to the point where they're throwing basically their earnings overboard because they're paid not to throw things overboard, they're paid to deliver them, right? That's what we generally expect when the UPS truck shows up, right? That he actually walks the package to your door. I mean, that would be very weird, wouldn't it, if he came and knocked on the door? Yeah, I don't have anything. I threw it off. What? It made any sense. They're not paid to not deliver. That's how afraid they are. Right now, all that mattered was their lives. A tempestuous storm grew. And they cried out to their gods, each to his God. I mean, you picture five or six mariners on the side of the boat, all with a different God, just crying out. And they want Jonah to join the crying out party. But he's fast asleep in the belly of the ship. What do you mean, sleeper arise, call out to your God? Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so we may not perish again. I love the honesty of these guys. They kind of have a suspicion. We're not really sure our gods are going to do anything about this. Maybe you got one. Start praying to your God, whoever it is. I love that. I don't understand as a tempestuous storm arises out our doors. How do you fall asleep? How do you stay asleep in a boat when it's like that? My daughter, Paige, when she was four, we were on a vacation. We were out on a little boat and she was tired. We went down to the bottom and she falls asleep on my lap. And it, it wasn't really rough, but it was just enough that lunch was talking to me, if you know what I mean in the belly of that boat, but I've got my daughter just fast asleep on my lap. But they were lapping waves. How do you sleep in this? But he did. And the contrast between Jonah and the sailors, the contrast in their care for people and his indifference couldn't, couldn't be more astounding. He's asleep they are seeking the common good of everyone on the boat. Now, they may have some suspicion as to whether or not their gods are even real, but at least they're praying. And they're not only praying for themselves, they're praying for everybody on the ship, not Jonah. Jonah, the one who knows the true God, is not praying to the true God. Jonah's indifferent. The sailors are concerned. The captain of the boat is flabbergasted that Jonah could be sleeping. Jonah can't be bothered. Have you noticed at times unbelievers can demonstrate more compassion than God's own people? Sometimes the common grace in unbelievers shines brighter than the special grace that only believers can display. Now, what do I mean by common grace, special grace? Common grace is just that grace that everyone can experience. You know, things have not been great this year, but guess what? By the common grace of God, they're not as bad as they could be, right? There's anarchy, there's lawlessness, there's all kinds of things, but it's not as bad as it could be. 
by the common grace of God, the restraining grace of God. Special grace is salvation. Special grace is that revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you've had the revelation of Jesus Christ, that means you've come under the mercy of Jesus Christ, which means in theory, they ought to be the ones most proclaiming and demonstrating the mercy of God, not those who are without the mercy of God. But sometimes unbelievers look more like Christians than Christians. That's Jonah's case. Now, common grace doesn't save. It makes the world a better place. But those who didn't know God on that boat reflected more of God's heart than the one man who knew God on that boat. You see, the book of Jonah, it's not, it's not primarily or merely teaching us about uh, go out on foreign missions. If God says go, you better go or you're going to end up at a fish. That's not really the message. That could be an application. But the message is this. If there's not a love for people, a love that compels us to pursue people and treat people with Christ-like and Christ-imitating love, well, not only would there be no point in going on missions, it's a revelation that we truly don't understand the mercy of God. He's merciful toward all who will come to him. Jonah was not. Now, there are theological tensions we need to hold. And when I say tension, it's only tension in appearance, not in reality. We are called to be set apart, right? We are called to not be of this world, right? And yet, simultaneously, we are called to go into the world at the same time. So we're called out of the world to go back into the world to love the world, as instruments of mercy. Now we'll come back to some implications of that in a moment. But first and foremost, theologically, Jonah reveals the mercy of God. Secondly, Jonah, the book of Jonah, reveals the sovereignty of God. God is merciful, number one. Number two, God is sovereign. Simply, what does that mean? God is the supreme authority over all the earth and all things, including really big fish, are under his control. This conversation did not happen in the heavenlies the day Jonah headed for Tarshish. Did you notice, God, Jonah didn't listen to you? He didn't obey. He's headed for Tarshish instead of Nineveh. He's going the completely opposite direction. And God hears this, and this is what God did not say. Well, that's too bad. I was really hoping Jonah would listen. Well, all we can do now is hope he turns around. That's not sovereignty. That's wishful thinking. God is not the God of wishful thinking. God's the God of sovereignty. Psalm 139 describes God's sovereignty in one of the most intimate while sobering of ways. Let's personalize this for Jonah. He probably taught Israel this psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go to Tarshish, which he never quite made it, you would be there. If I make my bed in the depths, or in Jonah's case, if I sleep on the inside of a ship, maybe God won't see me below deck. 
You are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, if I try to run as far away as Tarshish, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You know, I tried to move to Florida when I was 20. I didn't share this in the first sermon. I tried to move to Florida when I was 20. You know, I was a normal 20-year-old. Girl broke up with me, crushed my heart, crushed my dreams, and I wanted to quit school. How many have that story? Something close to it. <laughs> Might be the person sitting next to you and you reconcile and you just don't want to admit it right now. Okay, all right. So I tried to move to Florida. I just wanted to get away. I just wanted to get away. My cousin offered me a job. All's going well. And then he said the most annoying thing right at the end. He said, hey, before you pack your bags, whatever it is you're trying to get away from there will be here waiting for you. I don't like you right now, cousin. <laughs> but he was right because the problem is always first and primarily internal. Tarshish wasn't going to solve a thing for Jonah because Jonah was taking Jonah to Tarshish. Jonah may well have known those words. I'm sure he did, but he ran anyway. Two times in chapter one, we see the special intervention of God. In the first instance, it's with Jonah. God's sovereignty is powerful. It commands our respect and awe, and at the same time, it's very personal. Jonah sinned greatly, but in God's sovereignty and mercy, married together, God was not finished with Jonah. Aren't you glad God is not finished with you? Aren't you glad when, even if metaphorically, you've tried to run to Tarshish, God didn't quit on you? Now, it took the near sinking of a ship, a great storm to awaken Jonah to the reality. He could not escape God's plan or calling for him, but it serves as a powerful demonstration and reminder that the purposes of God will not be thwarted. Try and even disobey as we might. Well, that all brings us a couple implications. What are the implications of God's mercy, God's sovereignty, not merely over Jonah's life, but our lives? Because Holy Scripture is preserved for us. So number one, three implications. Number one, God has sovereignly put people in your path. What will you do? What will you do? People in your path are not random. We all have people in our path in at least three different places, our, our neighborhood and homes, work and school, and the activities we may participate in. People we see, and we see them again, and we see them again. And, and of course, sometimes it includes someone we may never see again. But God has sovereignly put people in our paths, and the people he has put in our paths, many of them are in need of the saving grace of God that can only come to them through the mercy of Jesus Christ. So are we there randomly or sovereignly? Well, sovereignty doesn't mean we're mere robots being controlled or puppets on strings. During the break, I tried to make a cup of coffee in the back. A number of things did not work out well for me. One of them, including it didn't break, thank you, but uh, I actually knocked the whole coffee pot over. There wasn't anything in it. Well, sovereign God, I don't know why you did that. No, that's not what sovereignty means. It means God has ordained our days. 
He's put people in our path. Will we see ourselves as emissaries in the places we go? Or are we indifferent? Are there people right now coming to mind that by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you may need to begin to think of differently instead of them, but as possible recipients of the mercy of God? Number two, and this is such good news, where Jonah failed, Jesus perfectly obeyed and for the joy set before him endured the cross that we could receive mercy. So, so don't misunderstand. The message of Jonah is not be better than Jonah. Come on, Trinity. Be better than Jonah. Care more than Jonah. No, no, no. The message of Jonah is praise God, there is one better than Jonah. That's why Jesus said, the only sign this generation's gonna get is the sign of Jonah. I'm gonna do something in a three-day period the world has never seen, and I'm gonna do it for you. Don't go out and try to be a better Jonah. Start by praising God there is one better than Jonah. His name is Jesus. Finally, I alluded to this earlier, but outward, Horizontally speaking, we should not be outdone by unbelievers in showing mercy. Trinity, the city of Titusville ought to know Trinity as more merciful than any common grace mercy any unbeliever in Titusville could ever display. So, even as believers are called to outdo one another in showing honor, Trinity, you outdo unbelieving Titusville in showing mercy to Titusville. Amen? You outdo unbelieving Titusville in showing mercy. Let's never forget, good works, displays of mercy, they flow from salvation, not for salvation. Works don't save, but care for the poor, care for the needy, care for the broken, care for the abused, you name it. The fact that we care is a demonstration we've received mercy and we're eager for others to receive what we have received. So the place, I think, to conclude, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get a can of green beans and get a can of soup and give generously and do all those things, but before any of that, let's pray our hearts are warmed by mercy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you sovereignly called me by name and saved me through the precious and atoning blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you warm my heart to your unending mercies toward me that are new every morning? Lord, warm my heart to the point that my heart cannot help but see the people you put in my path today as sovereignly appointed by you and ones to whom you want to show mercy and you have put me in the position to be an emissary of your mercy. Holy Spirit, enable me to discern moment to moment, if it is my words, my attitude, my deeds, or even my generosity that are what is most needed to display your mercy to someone in need today. Amen.
God cares deeply about how deeply we care about people.